1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19 says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found then to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If it's only in this life that we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all. The resurrection of Christ is the most confronting stories in all of history. What do you do with this story? What do you do with this event? If you read any biography, any biography as far as it relates to that person outside of memories of ends at their death. But the biography of Christ does not stop at his death. It is unlike any biography anywhere. So this is where we're going. John chapter 20. Open your Bibles there, John chapter 20. We are at the resurrection. We've got uh, this week and next week, the last two Sundays as we finish out this series. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, I think kind of the first 10 verses is a bit of an introduction. It's setting the pace for what's about to take place. John then jumps into these uh, uh, three different kinds of responses or three responses, I should say, to the fact of the resurrection. Then he has a conclusion at the end. Before we dig in, let me pray. Lord God, you are alive and well. Lord, it's just this morning we've already delved into song truth, singing scriptural truth about you. Oh, your love is astounding. Why you put up with us, how you put up with us, I don't get it. But thank you. Lord, I pray as we dig into the resurrection for many, we've heard this story again and again and again. And we're going to hear it again. And here in about another month, we're going to hear it again. But it's a great story to hear again. Speak big to us today. In the alive name of Christ, we pray. Amen. John chapter 20, you there? All right, let's get at it. The introduction part, here we go. Verse 1, John chapter 20. Uh, Now on the first day of the week, it's Sunday. It's interesting that it doesn't say that it's Sunday. It says it's the first day of the week. It's kind of interesting when you go through the New Testament and see how uh, different uses of words on days are used. And this one, it's the first day of the week. You already kind of have a sense out of the gate here in chapter 20 that uh, something new's happening on the stage of history. Uh, So now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, not Mary, Jesus' mother, but Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb early while it was still dark. In other words, it was way early in the morning, 
Okay, like dark early in the morning, like you shouldn't be up at this time early in the morning. But the more and more I age, the more and more I find myself there. Uh, It's really early in the morning. It's dark. And he saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, I'm going to let you know, I'm not going into the chronological order of things. We're going to be really hitting that when we come up to April 1st and April 8th. Uh, right around there, I'm going to be covering the chronology of what took place in a whole different level because John is really, I think, about the people around the cross and the people around the resurrection. So who is this Mary Magdalene? Just for uh, memory purposes here, Luke chapter 8, we find Jesus uh, casts out multiple demons from this woman. This was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Matthew 27, as a result of all this, she's following Jesus to Jerusalem along with the disciples and other followers, caring for him, caring for them. Matthew or Mark 15, 40, she follows Jesus to the cross. And seven verses later in Mark 15, 47, she watches where Jesus is buried. And she's the first person at the tomb on Sunday. Hey, um, this is so cool. Because God uses the foolishness of mankind to shame the wise. Why do I say that? Well, here's a couple reasons why. Mary was formerly a demon-possessed woman. I mean, this is a person who's low on the totem pole, if you will, as far as society looks. She was at the low of low, a demon-possessed woman, and yet she is the first one to be able to see Jesus risen from the dead. That rocks. There's hope for you and I. Okay? There's hope for you and I. Also, and hang with me here, okay? But hang with me. At the day and the time, she was a woman. Well, she was a woman, yeah. But, I mean, she was a woman in a day and a time where, in essence, two things were taking place. One, a woman's evidence was not allowed into court. Also, some of the rabbis made this statement. It is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. Man, how cool is this? God like smacks that idea. Because a woman is the first person to be able to see the risen Christ. In that day and age, that is just so cool. Ladies, isn't that cool? I mean, like, it's like God's not going to let that kind of garbage happen in his world. He's going to use the foolishness of man to be able to... Show how awesome he is. And here's a formerly demon-possessed woman is the first first to see him risen. That just rocks. You can't get away from that. God knows exactly what he's doing. And he's doing things on purpose. Oh, so cool. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, so she ran away from the tomb, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciples we've talked about here is John, the one whom Jesus loved. And again, that's not an arrogant terminology in the day. We've talked about that. And he said to these two, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have taken him. What's she thinking at this point? She's thinking at this point that Jesus' body has been stolen. Uh, Grave rob. Robbing in the day was the common thing that was done. And so she goes to the tomb. She's not understanding all what's going on. She just knows this. His body's gone, probably stolen. 
Again, we're going to get into all the chronology of what's taking place. And the fact that the, the stone is rolled, the seal is broken, the guards are gone, all this kind of stuff makes it just so clear on what's happening here. Verse 3, so Peter, he went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. This is like guys right here. Watch this. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Is that not like boys? Will we not ever grow up? Isn't that it? I beat him uh, for whatever. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Peter had a little bit more pooch on him and maybe John was a little bit skinnier. I don't know what's going on, but John gets there first. And that does have implications because of what's said now. Verse five, and stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came <laughs> following him and went into the tomb. By the way, there's just kind of a bit of timidity on John's part here, but not Peter. Peter's the boy who's always out front, isn't he? By the way, please remember, he denied Christ three times, and there has been no, if you will, restitution between the two yet. And yet he runs in. A lot's going on in Peter's head. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw... Uh, the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Uh, John notes all the details of the linen cloths here. It really is important. By the way, may I remind us of this? John chapter 11, verse 44, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And if you remember, I kind of get a kick out of him walking out of the tomb, raised from the dead. Uh, Oh, yeah, do you remember this? He had all the linens wrapped around him. That's what I thought was so funny. He's coming out, boing, boing, boing on the wall. How does he know where to walk? He's got all this stuff wrapped around him. And they unwrapped him. Not here. This is a resurrection unlike any other ever. Jesus came out of the grave with no linens on. The grave clothes are laying on the stone shelf that they would have. By the way, this is a brand new tomb we saw from last week. No other bodies were in there. This grave, the, the grave linens are there on it. The, the, the head, part around the head, I'm not going to go into the details on it, but it's folded, it's rolled up apart from it. What's the big deal about this? It's a big deal about this because two men saw it. That means it's admissible to court in Jewish times. And also, these men who see the scene, let's play a little Columbo here, okay? In the scene, there's no way the body could have been stolen. Who does that? Oh, remember last week, 75 pounds of spices on top of all this. There's no way it was stolen. There's no way Jesus swooned. In other words, he didn't really die. He just got close to death. And then he's put into this tomb where the moisture and the cool just brought him back to life. Get out of here. Who can do what the the, the scene is saying happened? What it's saying here is something happened unlike anything else. The fact of the matter is this. Jesus passed through uh, the linen clothes. (laughs) Isn't that cool? I mean, nowadays with computer graphics, we can just kind of see it better. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, (laughs) also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Just a couple comments here. There's a number of things we could cover, but just for time's sake, I'm going to hit on a few specifics. I want to draw your attention to verse 5. John looked in. Look at verse 6. Peter saw. 
Look at verse 8. John saw. Why? What's the big deal about these? Because in the original language, these three words are three different words. Why would John write that way? Why would he write that way? Well, let me just kind of flow here a bit. In the first, verse 5, John, the term that's used in the Greek for looked in, it has this idea of just general sight, a general glance. I see. I see something. And John is on the outside of the tomb, and, and he just sees that. You, you see that? You, you see that? Uh, by the way, do, do you see the light? Yep, okay. That's what that term is talking about. Yeah, you see it, Okay. Now, for Peter, uh, John, the human author, Spirit of God working through him, writes, uses a different form of the Greek, of a Greek word, a whole different root form. Verse six, Peter saw, it talks about this idea, it has more this idea of look carefully. In other words, Peter comes into the tomb and he looks carefully. He doesn't just like, yep, look at that. But he looks with some purposefulness. He looks with some care. And by the way, this is the same word we're going to see here in verses 12 and 14 when Mary sees two angels sitting. It's this idea of she looks and not just sees, but she looks with some careful intent. But here's the cool thing. Then it goes to John in verse 8. John then comes in the tomb and he sees the whole root form of this word is something unlike the other two. It has this idea of someone who perceives with intelligent comprehension. Not just see. Not just, wow, look at that, but like grab a hold of this whole scene. Hang on, grab a hold, grab a hold. I'm seeing what's going on here. I'm understanding, I'm comprehending. By the way, this is the same word that is used with Lazarus or with Jesus when Lazarus was dead. Jesus comes into town and the word is used there when Jesus sees what is taking place. It means that he looks and he sees a Mary, a different Mary, Mary Lazarus' sister weeping. He sees all the Jewish people around the scene weeping. He sees the tomb. He knows the fact that his friend Lazarus is dead in the tomb. He sees all the hopelessness of all the people. And this is the word that's used. He doesn't just see it, but he intelligent grasps the wholeness of the situation and draws a conclusion that's what's happening here in way john talks about it himself and what does it say look at verse 8 he saw he saw with intelligent comprehension and therefore he what what's the next what's what did he do he believed by the way please understand this isn't just like a yep i believe in george washington This is an entire placing. I'm telling you, in other words, John is looking at this whole thing and John's like, he, he, the only thing that makes sense with the scene of everything I'm comprehending here is this one rose from the dead. That's what he believed. He didn't even fully understand everything that's going on yet, but he knew this. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead when he intelligently comprehended the whole situation. I just have a question to ask for us. Which one fits you? Seriously. When you consider Jesus, when you see Christ, are you one who's kind of like the very first verse five where John is just saying, yeah, I see him. Yep, there Jesus is. Hey, how about them cults? Uh, Straight up. There is no belief there. The Bible tells us that even the demons know who he is and yet not believe. Then the second scene, it's with the careful looking at. It's kind of like, hey, look at that. Did you see that? 
but it's like this. I don't know what to do with that. I'm looking carefully, but I don't know what to do with that. Honestly, does that describe you now where you're at in your life? I see this and it's pretty stunning. It's grabbed my attention, but I don't know what to do with that. I'm interested. Or is it like John? The application of intelligent comprehension. The seriously, look at the facts. There's no other way. It could be anything other than this. I'm in on that. I'm in on that and I'm stating it and I'm declaring it. I believe that's what it is. May I remind us, John was never the same after this. Where are you at? Well, the story I think has been introduced The responses are beginning. Let's kind of narrow in with John here. And the first one is Mary. Mary Magdalene. She goes from weeping to joy. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. By the way, this weeping here, it's this idea of this crying. It's this weeping. Again, I'm kind of bringing things back to Lazarus' tomb situation, but it was the same thing there. The word was this idea of great wailing, great weeping. It's not like... (laughs) I mean, it's wailing, weeping, okay? Mary stood weeping outside the tomb her whole life. Everything had just come crashing down around her. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Christ had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. I don't know if this is the case, but I just do have to note this. Man, that sounds like the cherub and a... Anyway, I'll keep on going. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Well, duh. I don't mean to be rude, but it's kind of like, I'm going to tell you, whenever we see in the scriptures, we'll see here in a while, Christ uses questions. The Godhead and and, and heavenly uh, realities use questions to draw out hearts. Great lesson for us in that. Use questions. Draw out the heart, parents. Uh, They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, "Uh, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. He's still got the idea she thinks he's been stolen. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Was it the fact that it was really dark in the morning? Was it the fact that her face was just so filled with tears? She couldn't see? Or was it the fact like when we... uh, Come at, on Easter Sunday, and we're going to be at, in Luke, where a road to Emmaus, where they just weren't allowed to understand who it was for a while. Don't know, but she's not comprehending who it is. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Again, questions. Supposing him to be the gardener. Okay. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, what? Mary. By the way, let's all turn over in our Bibles to John chapter 10. (laughs) So special. John chapter 10, Jesus is talking. Look at verse 2. Jesus is telling this story, this parable, truth in the parable. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. 
the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by what? And leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. Go back to John 20. Jesus said to her, woman, verse 15, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, you have carried, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, name, Mary. And look at the response. Remember John 10? The sheep who belong to the shepherd know his voice. She responded, Mary, and she turned to him. In Aramaic, it said, Raboni, which means teacher. She knew his name. She knew his voice. Hey, I want for you to understand, if you have this idea of, of God as someone who is in some ways impersonal, that you are just a number of billions of people, he knows you by name. Not only that, for some of this, this gets more discouraging as age goes along, But the scripture says he knows the number of hairs on our head. If he knows that, he knows your name. You know, the show Cheers used to be here when Norm would walk in. Norm! Right, Norm? But it's way better than that. The Colossians chapter 1, the one who created all things, knows you by name. Do you know his voice? This comes back to the how do you see? Or are you out on the perimeter a ways away from? Or are you kind of engaged but not sure what to do from it? Or are you, like John 10 says, one who knows his voice and follows him? That's what it's saying. His sheep follow him. Not just hang around on the outside of the fences. They follow him. So cool. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Release, Mary. (laughs) Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them. By the way, write away an assignment, a going assignment. Hey, there's joy in this moment, but there's a going call in it. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Bam! And that he has said these things to her. It's interesting in this clinging and ascending thing in verses 7 and 18. uh, Mary grasping Jesus. She's not comprehending what's going on. Exactly what's going on in her head. I'm not sure. I think she's just thrilled to pieces, don't you? It's like, don't go! (laughs) But let me point out this. Earlier in John, we talked uh, about some various stories and One of them was uh, the woman who was being stoned for having an affair with another man. And um, she was at his feet, and he was okay with that. And then if you go back in another Mary, there's so many Marys. It was like the name of the day. Another Mary, if you remember, poured nard perfume all over his feet wiped it with her hair, and he was fine with that. But now it's different. 
I was going to say, there's, there's, there was a time where the, the incarnate Christ was with us. He was among us. Grab a hold. But now we're going to begin seeing a change taking place with the risen Christ. Now it's more like, listen, don't grab a hold. Uh, he's in this ascended state process, which is kind of cool. But also in the reality of, listen, things change differently. May I remind us in Revelation chapter 1, John falls down to his face to the ground, thinks he's going to die because he's seen Christ. Things are changing. It's not that the relationship has changed, but now we're talking about the risen Lord as opposed to the incarnate Lord. The risen Lord is the one who's going to be coming back again, riding on the horse. And yet, as we read the other week, he still has the scars. Just talk about it at lunch. It's cool stuff. Mary, I have seen the Lord. Well, let's pick up with the next guys. From weeping to joy... Her life confusion and anguish and despair is now instantly swallowed up by delight in Christ. Relationship is restored. Mary Magdalene from weeping to joy. Now we go to the 10 from fear to peace. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors opened, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So you got the idea what's going on? They're in a room, doors are locked, and they're scared to death. Why are they scared to death? Well, because the Jewish leadership just killed their leader, and they very well could be next, and they're scared to death. So the doors are locked. That's important because, look, Jesus came and stood among them, uh, not through the door, not through the door. How does anyone do that? Um, the laws of nature are in God's hands, okay? Science is pretty cool, but science doesn't know it all. God has it all in his hands. He is the master professor of all scientific research. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Hey, when you are in fear, what's the thing you want? Peace. Peace be with you. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Here they are in fear. They're in terror. Jesus steps into their fear world. Peace. (laughs) Take a look, boys. I'm back. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Boy, this is one of the things in the King James Version and the English Standard Version. They have this word glad. I just, I I don't like that. Because it's kind of like, wow, we're glad you're here too. Doesn't that kind of English have that potential? I just don't think that's what's happening here to you. You know, hey, Jesus is here. Walk through the wall. Glad you're here, buddy. No. Uh, and that's where, like, what is it? New American Standard, you have rejoiced. Or the, <laughs> or the NIV has overjoyed, I think, really trying to get at it there. And there is, it's actually, it's kind of a hard word to put in the context of it all. Glad is maybe a bit British in the discussion of it all. But I think, let's be English. This is rejoiced. This is overjoyed. It's like, get out of it. No, don't get out of here. He's here. Listen, this is joy. From fear to peace and gladness. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Again, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Second time, and there's a task at hand. Hey, joy, peace, but get at it. 
you're going to be my children, I have a task for you, and I'm not going to wait along around past one sentence before I let you know that I have a task for you. Let's go. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. I'm telling you, we could spend the whole morning right there, but I'm just going to sum it up. And this can be another lunch discussion for you because what's being said here, I'm just going to sum it this way. I do not see this as a pre-Pentecost or giving of the Holy Spirit moment here. Some do just so that you know that. I don't think that's what's happening here in the full context of it. Uh, in the context here, it uses this word breathed, and it has breathed on. It could be breathed on, but actually it, it doesn't have the full form of that. There's a bit of interpretation going on there. And it can mean that Jesus breathed and said. He, exa- he exhaled and said um, in this whole process. I think what's happening here is Jesus is giving a symbolic of what's about to come. I understand there's different views on that and on what's taking place, and I acknowledge that. But I just want to let you know where I'm at. I don't think this is a Pentecost one. I don't think, in other words, the tongues came down from the sky and the Spirit of God filled people at this point in time. I think, in essence, this is a preemptive of what's going to happen. So what's being said about this forgiveness thing? Well, I think it's this. If you look at the context, the context is saying, go, go. And it's in the going and the proclamation of the gospel to where forgiveness is given. And the form of this forgiveness is it's, it's, it's called it's in the passive voice, which means, in other words, you aren't the ones who are doing this. Actually, this is done outside of you. This is God forgives, and God is also the one who doesn't give forgiveness. So it's this. So just sum it up here. It's this. As you go out proclaiming the gospel... God, as the gospel works in the lives of people and people respond, God, passive. It's not me, it's passive. It's from another. God is the one who grants forgiveness to people. And if people reject the gospel, God is the one who withholds forgiveness because of their choice to reject. Okay? Um, I'm sorry, I always hate leaving these deep theology things like that. I've got to keep going, but I'm going to go. All right? Uh, Mary Magdalene, weeping to joy, hear the ten, fear to peace. Now the third is Thomas, Thomas, from skepticism to belief. Obviously, Thomas is not at the meeting when uh, all this other stuff happened. Let's find out what's going on with Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, i.e., who wasn't there at the meeting the week earlier, called the twin. Uh, apparently, he was a twin. Uh, we'll go on. Was not with them when Jesus came earlier. The other disciple, disciple said to him, we have seen the Lord. By the way, how cool is that? What did Mary say? What did Mary say? I have seen the Lord. What did they say? Oh, seen a pattern here. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I think Thomas really gets a bum rap and called doubting Thomas. But sometimes we respond in a whole other direction to that and kind of treat Thomas like he's an awesome guy. Like he, he questioned things. Listen, it is okay to question things. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of people writing who are like, God, what in the world are you doing? But each Psalm also comes to a conclusion in it. So it's okay to ask questions. But what's going on here with 
with uh, Thomas. If you look in John eleven fourteen, we actually get some hints that Thomas, as we covered before, actually he is a pretty courageous guy. He's like he's at the one point he says, "Listen, I will kind of like Peter, I will die for you, Christ." And then we also see that he's a spiritually minded guy, but there's clearly a sense of pessimism with him as well. And there's nothing wrong for wanting the facts. By the way, we're going to come at the end of this chapter. Why did John write? He wrote so that you can know the facts, so you can be able to make a decision. So we want to admire him for wanting the facts. But frankly, I think we can fault him for setting the conditions. In other words, God, it's got to be this way. God, get me a job, then I'll believe in you. God, heal a family member, then I'll believe in you. God, you fill in the blank, then I'll respond. Listen, God doesn't work that way. And God's going to make that known here. Okay? The end of verse 25, by the way, it's literally, I positively will not believe. This is a stern moment here. Verse 26, eight days later, so it's a week later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. It's a Thomas day. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and you tell me what Jesus said. That's so awesome. In none of these times does Jesus come back and go, you buffoons. I spent three stinking years of my life with you and you still don't get it. Oh, you irritate me. I don't know fully what your view of God is, but I want for you to look at this and understand your Savior understands you. And he is patient. And he is long-suffering. And he brings peace. Peace be with you. I think Thomas needed it right at the moment. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, and we don't see anything of here of Thomas speaking up and saying, who are you? But it's like this. He knows exactly what's going on in your questions in your life. Hey, what do you want to know about Christ? He knows exactly what you're wondering. And he was willing to address them. Thomas, my friend, put your finger here. Thomas, see my hands? Thomas, uh, uh, put out your hand and place it in my side. Uh, Thomas, do not disbelieve. Thomas, believe. We don't see anything here stated about Thomas did any touching. We may have. I don't know. But at the same time, it might have been this situation. You know what? Don't need to do that. Question's been answered. Uh, I want to be careful here how far I take this, but I will just say this. Oftentimes people have so many questions and it's like, until I get this answered, until I get this answer that we've talked about. And it's just like, you know what? When we see God one day, whether you know Christ or not, and you see him, I guarantee this, on our face to the ground, all questions will be answered. The whole why mosquitoes thing, answered. The whole free will predestination thing, guess what? Answered. 
Everything's going to be answered at the seeing of him. So Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. This is one of the most amazing, wonderful, succinct, Christological statements in all of eternity. Bam. That's who it is. That's who he is. Is he you? that for you? And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hey, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're blessed. You're blessed. Last two verses, the conclusion. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. John is stepping out of the story, kind of giving an authorial input here. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By the way, those are both titles, that Jesus is the Christ. That's talking about the Daniel 7 one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one from the Old Testament has been talking about all the way back from the very beginning of Genesis, the one who would step on Satan's head. That, that one there, that's the one who now, this is who it is. Jesus is that person. Jesus is that promised one. Uh, he is the Christ. He is the son of God. Again, not birthed out of. Uh, we just, English, we, I understand why we get this. It's so hard for us to grasp it when you see the son of God or son of man. It's equivalent of. This is a divinity statement. This is a statement he's equivalent of. He is the one, again, of Daniel chapter 7. He's that one. This is God in the flesh. That was, that's what John is trying to help us understand. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Please understand this. What he's saying is this. This happened. This person is this capital P person. And if you come to the place where you believe this, you have life. By the way, that also means that if you don't, you don't have life. First John 5, 11 through 13 says, and this is the testimony that God has given eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And especially in America, there's this idea that Jesus died and it's just applied to everyone on the planet. That's not what the Bible talks about. That's not what we see here happening. There comes a place and a point in time where we have to come and make this declaration. Mary Magdalene, oh my word, I've seen the Lord. And yet she didn't even get a whole bunch of stuff yet. And then we see the 10. They're like, we have seen the Lord. This is this Christological statement. Christ is God in the flesh. Then Thomas wraps it all up so personally and so well. He is my Lord, not just the Lord, not just God, That goes back to the seeing thing. Not like John just looking, hey, look at that. Look at that. Yeah, there was a Jesus in history and he said he was God and they did some stuff. And man, he's a moral guy. Got a lot to learn from him. Yeah, uh uh-huh. That's not at all what this is talking about. 
This is coming to the conclusion point that, goodness gracious, the one who did all this stuff, that is the one that God proclaimed, the Father proclaimed that would be coming, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh to die for sin, rise from the dead, proving the fact of who he was, proving the fact of giving life, as I read in 1 Corinthians 15 at the start of our time together. And here's the question. Do you know him? And I'm asking those of you who do know him as well. Have you stepped back and just done a John look for a while in your life? Yep, got Jesus. Got milk too. Without Christ, life is full of weeping. Without Christ, life is full of fear. And without Christ, life is an ongoing continuum of skepticism. You want joy? You want peace? Believe. Let's pray. I'm just going to take a moment here while heads are bowed. And just ask this. Has there been a staking in the ground decision moment in your life at some time? Has there been a covenant vow moment in your life? You know, people talk about marriage. Yeah, I'm all about marriage. Yeah, marriage is a great thing. But a person is not married until they make a covenant vow. And this is the kind of time I cannot get past a passage like this and just press home the question just to make sure, listen, friends, Has there been a time where you have made the declarative stake it in the ground moment to where, no, no, this is not just the Lord and God. This is my Lord and my God. If it's just, yep, look at that, that's interesting. There's no redemption in that. There's no forgiveness in that. There's no salvation in that. There's no joy in that. There's no peace in that. And there is no real belief in that. Do you just believe that Jesus Christ lived and lives? Or is Jesus Christ living in you? Revelation gives this illustration. It says, uh, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will go in. You got the perfect picture there. And let me just ask this. Have you been standing at the door while it's been knocking? Christ is knocking on your life and you're just like, yep, I see you. Yep, I see you. Look at that. There's Jesus. And not open the door. 
Or has there been a time in your life where you've grabbed the handle of the truth that you know about from Scripture and say, Jesus, listen, you are my God, you are my Lord, come into my life. As the Scripture says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Has there been a time in your life where that's the case? If there has, rejoice, and I ask you this question, are you going? Are you living it out? And I want to ask others today, if you're not sure, make sure. It's time to drive the stake. Lord, I'm a sinner separated from you. I open the door. My Lord, my God, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. May I now live for you. You've never done that. I want to call you to do that and be that. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. Just with head bowed, I'm just going to ask. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. But if there's anybody who's like, you know what? I need to drive the stake. I'm going to ask you to do two things. One, I'm going to ask you to send me an email and let me know that's the case. And two, I'm just going to ask that right now, if you would stand. There may not be anybody, but there may be somebody, I don't know. But if there's never been a time in your life where you've driven the stake in the ground, like at a marriage ceremony, you've made the covenant vow, maybe you've been observing, but you've never been a believer. You want to stand? Just stand now. Then we're going to have here in just a second, everybody else stand and close this and sing. Is there anybody? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord God, from weeping to joy, from fear to peace, from hopeless skepticism to full-out confident, comprehended belief. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. And Lord, as we wrap up, our time here with these next two songs. May we sing it like you're alive. Peace. In your name.